Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles or devices and find Ruth chapter two. I'll give you some time to get there. We're in the book of Ruth, studying for um, six weeks. So we got today and then three more weeks after that. Now, uh, quick recap. The book of Ruth is situated in the middle of what's called the time of the judges. So there's no king in Israel, which is uh, the promised land. There's no king. uh, And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's what scripture tells us in Judges 21. Ruth is situated there. I mean, the world has just spun into chaos. And Ruth is there. One uh, author says that the book of Ruth is an oasis in the desert of the time of Judges to point to us, point us to the fact that God is working. Even when we don't see it, he's working. This is the book of Ruth. In it is the doctrine of God's providence. Uh, The idea of providence is that um, God sees it. And if God sees it, he will see to it. He sees what you're walking in. And he will see to it, bringing him glory and you good. He will see to it. If he sees it, he will see to it. We said a few weeks ago that God's providence, which is his continued care and governance over all his creation. He didn't just uh, create the world and set it into motion, then back up until he has to intervene at the end of days. He is continuing to care for it. We said his providence began in the past to be ready in the present that it might bless the future. This is uh, the providence of God. A quote from A.W. Tozer that will carry us throughout this series is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The way we view God is the lens by which we view the circumstances and happenings in our lives. If we view God as powerful but distant, we will view the circumstances in our lives as punitive or as, uh, as him just not helping, not showing up. If we view him as good, but not powerful, then we view the circumstances in our lives as beyond God's control. He just couldn't help it. I mean, if he could, he would, but, but scripture teaches us that God is both sovereign, he's king, he's powerful, and he is good. And so in that overlap is where we find his providence. He can and he will. We just misunderstand good from time to time. But we can believe in this God. Now, how many of you are tinkerers? You like to tinker with things? You like to try to make things better? um, I'm an incessant tinker. I believe there's an ultimate expression of efficiency in everything that we do. I believe that. Um, To my detriment. I believe there are always ways to make things more efficient or to make them better. Anybody else like that? Is it just me? I believe there's always ways. There's always ways we can set up our furniture that will make our house more efficient, that will make our house feel better, that make the flow and the feng shui better. Uh, I watch too much HGTV, but make that feel better in our home. I believe there's there's a way that I can mow my grass that is the most efficient way to mow my grass. And I'm going to find it. I'm going to figure it out. Uh, That there's there's a way to, um, to get to places that's most efficient. Um, I believe that in the grocery store, there's a particular way in which you go that is the most efficient way to buy groceries. I haven't figured it out yet um, because this Publix is new. I'm not, don't quite have my bearings there. 
and I spend too much, so I'm not allowed to go to the grocery store. Uh, but maybe, maybe you have these similar traits. Maybe with your children, there's, a, there's a, a way, there's an efficient way, a way that you tinker. You're like, well, that's not working with my 13-year-old. Let me try this. And then you realize there's nothing that works with your 13-year-old. Um, they are uniquely created. They're a gift from the Lord to you, um, by the way. I don't need that. You need that. Um, so it's just what we're, we're, that's me. I, I continue to tinker. Uh, but it reveals itself most often um, in my relationship with Jesus. I don't settle in very often. Like I don't, um, I don't settle into kind of the, the process to take the 76ers idea. I, I, I don't trust the process very often. I believe there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be another solution. There's gotta be something I'm doing wrong that's not yielding the results that I want. So I've gotta figure something else out. And it reveals itself for me often when it comes to God and the plans that he has for my life. I know he says there are plans to prosper me and not to harm me, plan for a hope and a future. I just, I want that to happen quicker than it does. So I try to tinker a bit and it leads me in places where I never thought I would ever end up. So I wanna study some of that here this morning. We put us all in context of Ruth chapter two. Um, Ruth is the daughter-in-law of a woman named Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant or lovely. Uh, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, um, whose name means my God is king, have moved from Judah, Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, in the, in the promised land of God. And they have left there because there's a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem meaning house of bread. There's a famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. So Elimelech and Naomi take their two boys and they leave Judah. They leave the promised land and they go to an uh, area called Moab. Now, uh, Moab worships false gods. Moabites um, began because of an incestuous relationship with Abraham's nephew Lot and a daughter. And so this, uh, this, it's a weird sort of worship that happens there. And God's people are told to beware of the Moabites, particularly Moabite women. Elimelech and Naomi take their two boys and they get there uh, to find some food. And while they're there for 10 years, uh, the boys marry. They marry two, uh, two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Elimelech dies, so Naomi is a widow. And then her two sons die. So now she's by herself and she just has these two Moabite daughters-in-law. She hears word there's food back in Bethlehem, and so uh, she begins to make the journey back to Bethlehem to find food, to be fed back in the promised land. Again, Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, try to come with her. She tells them not to. Orpah says, all right, and so she goes back home, and Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Side note, um, that's not a husband saying it to a wife or a wife to a husband. That's a wife saying it to a mother-in-law. So if you are engaged, I would just challenge you. Maybe during your wedding, turn and say to your mother-in-law, how you decorate, I will decorate. And how you cook meatloaf, I will cook meatloaf. And your recipes will be my recipes. Um, but that's what's happening there. So Ruth, her name means friend. Ruth proves her friendship, proves her loyalty, and goes back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, knowing no one, with no hope of future marriage, and she makes her journey back. Uh, they get back there. The whole town is stirred because they show up because Naomi has been gone for 10 years and she hasn't posted on social media in like seven years. And so nobody knows what's happening with her. And so she gets back. Um, Ruth is with her, a Moabite woman. And so the whole town is stirred over what is happening. 
But the author of Ruth gives us a clue as to the timing of this happening in Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, which, my friends, is a cliffhanger. Stay tuned next week. So this is next week. So now we're, uh, the next episode is here in Ruth chapter two. We know that they're back in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, but it's just Naomi and her daughter-in-law. Back in, in these times, you, she, they need a man to provide and take care of them. And so they're just really on their own trying to figure things out. There's two needs that Naomi and Ruth need. Uh, they need food and they need family. They need food for nourishment, for sustenance, and they need family for provision and protection. They need this to happen. In this culture, you've got the individual who is part of a family, and then the family is part of a clan, and the clan then is part of a tribe. The clan is the most important people group to be a part of because the clan is what carries out protection and provision even in the time of sorrow and pain. But they're not sure there's anyone even left from their clan. It's been 10 years, there's been famine, but they're looking for food and family. Ruth chapter two, verse one, the narrator tells us something in verse one. Verse one, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, her deceased husband, whose name was Boaz. Now, Boaz's name, his name means strength or strengthened. When they would build the temple, one of the um, pillars of the temple is actually named Boaz because of that word to be strength and sturdiness. Again, this is just the narrator telling us. So uh, we come into the episode. If you can just picture this episode of some um, drama, it's Downton Abbey is happening. And so she, the narrator tells us, hey, by the way, there's a relative out there and his name is Boaz. He hasn't showed up as a key figure yet. We haven't met him on screen. We just know that he's out there is all that we know. This is a setup for us to pay attention. But two things to notice about uh, Boaz. First, he is a worthy man. Now, in context, what this means is he has worth. He has money. He's a wealthy man, a man of good stature. This is who he is. And he's of the clan of Elimelech. He is worthy financially. He has worth, and he happens to be of the clan of Elimelech. Well, what do you know? There's a clan. There's somebody from their clan here in Bethlehem, and his name as Boaz. So what the author is trying to tell us is, you wanted a knight in shining armor. Here he is. You want a hero? You want Zac Efron? Here he is. He's going to show up His name is Boaz. Be on the lookout for him. He meets the qualifications. He has uh, what he needs to provide for Naomi and Ruth, and he is part of their clan, so he is uh, almost obligated to care for them. This is who he is. Verse two, and Ruth the Moabite, notice how many times the author calls her the Moabite or from Moab. The author's trying to make us understand she's not from here. She's not from here. She's from a foreign land. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him. The him is generic, after anyone. She's not talking about Boaz. She doesn't even know Boaz. Let me go to a field and let me glean after someone in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. 
Remember, Ruth has no idea who Boaz is, doesn't know he exists, has no idea. She's just a Moabite daughter-in-law trying to provide for her mother-in-law, doing the best that she can. Verse three, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So let me, let me give us some background. And we said that God's providence was, uh, began in the past. 350 or so years before this happened is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the law. It's God's initial telling of the law to his people. And in the Levitical law, in the law, in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, if you're taking notes, God tells his people, when you go out into the grain, into the barley field, when you go out there, don't reap everything. Don't take it all for yourself, but instead, leave the corners of the field. So the Bible says to cut corners. Do what you want with that. But God says, leave the corners of the field for the foreigner, for the poor, and the sojourner, the traveler, that they might have something to eat. 350 years before this, God puts law into place and he tells his people, as you harvest your land, maybe even in the barley harvest, leave the corners of the field because there will be people in need and they don't have a field uh, to pull from. They're gonna need your field. This is amazing because 350 years before Ruth, God put something in place that would provide for Ruth and Naomi. Do you see it? When God put that law into place, which seems great and generous, but I would imagine for 350 years gets tiresome, doesn't it? Like how much are you leaving in the corners that, that you could sell that would be for your family? And yet you're commanded to leave it because when God put that law into place in Leviticus 19, he saw Ruth. There are things that God has put into place hundreds of years before we have even existed. And it didn't make sense to ancestors. It didn't make sense to our family. And yet, he saw you when he put that in place. When God created Henry County, he saw you. When your neighborhood was built, he saw you. When almost 200 years ago, he planted this church, he saw you. God, what he planned in the past is coming to fruition in the present. So she goes out to pick up the leftovers in the corner after the reapers, after those had already been taken. She goes out for them. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Do you see the language? She happened to. The Hebrew there is uh, chance upon chance, she chanced upon the field that belonged to Boaz, who the author reminds us is of the clan of Elimelech. Have you ever been watching um, uh, any kind of like a, a chick flick or a movie or this past weekend uh, we sat and we watched a Netflix movie called A Week Away? Has anybody seen that yet? Listen, if you're a fan of 90s um, Christian music, Michael W. Smith, Stephen Curtis Chapman, a Amy Grant, it is that with High School Musical combined. I'm not saying I liked it. I'm just saying for my kids, I watched it with them. And, but it's one of those cheesy, like everything works out in the end and the guy gets the girl and, and all that. So um, maybe you've been sitting there, maybe husbands, you've been there, um, or maybe wives, you've been there with your husband and your spouse and there's this moment in the movie where you know this is not how the world actually works. You know what I mean? Where you're like, she's never that pretty at that place with those people. 
And so you're sitting there watching the movie and, um, and you're like, I can't, this is ridiculous. Like this never, this isn't real life. This isn't real, this never actually happens. And you turn uh, to your spouse and she's crying because of how amazing the love story is. You're like, you gotta be kidding me. You, this, this, like I, my five-year-old could have written this story. You, you think this is amazing? This is what's happening. The author says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Well, wouldn't you know it? Our phrase is, as luck would have it. But then it gets worse. Look at verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Well, look at that timing. Isn't this amazing? They were just singing a song in the field about grain, and it was amazing, and somehow everybody knew the song and knew all the dance number. They knew all of it. The reapers knew it. The foremen knew it. The grains of, of barley started moving around. Like, it was amazing. There was harmonies. Uh, people can't even talk, but they can sing, and it's amazing what's happening. And then one translation says, at that time, or at that very moment, Boaz returns from Bethlehem. Come on. It can't be that good, right? Like, it, surely this is all made up. But what if it isn't? Like, what if God really is that good? What if um, our desires for happy endings, our desires to see a hero, have actually been planted in us by the creator of the universe because that's how he wants the world to work? And so what if what we're drawn to in those kinds of movies, men, what, what if what you're drawn to in the underdog story, what if what you were drawn to with the Hawks in the playoffs, what if, what if what you're drawn to in documentaries is what God has planted in us because it's how he actually works? Nothing happens by accident. Everything happens by appointment. It's not as luck would have it. It's not chance upon chance. It's not a... This just so happened. God's hand is in the midst of this. And so God had the field planted and God had the law put into place and God um, had Naomi go to uh, Moab and God had them come back and God had Boaz take over this field and God had Boaz show up from Bethlehem. God did it. And maybe for some of us, you just need to start believing this is how good God is. Stop this cynicism. He can do it. He can do it. So Boaz shows up from Bethlehem. And he says in verse four, and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So uh, we learned something about Boaz's character. We learned a lot from what's called the theology of first mention. The first time we see a character in, in an account in scripture, we learn a lot about them. Boaz apparently loved his workers and they loved him. He wasn't demanding numbers, didn't want to know how many, um, how many bales of barley they had gotten so far. He just says, the Lord be with you. And they don't roll their eyes, they don't scoff, and they say, the Lord bless you. We know a lot about Boaz's character from that very interaction. Verse five, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, kind of the foreman of the reapers, those who would reap from the field, and he asked, whose young woman is this? Which is Hebrew for saying, who, does, who is she? 
But notice, he doesn't ask who is this. What he asks is, whose young woman is this? What he's asking is, whose clan does she belong to? Who is responsible for her? Is there anyone caring for her? Is there anyone providing for her? Verse six, the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, well, she is the young Moabite woman the one who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she would pick up whatever had been tied, whatever had fallen out of the bundles. Let me just do that. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. What he's saying is, I don't know, but she's worked hard. She came and she asked, she did the right thing. And she's been doing what we have been commanded by God to allow people to do. She's worked her tail off. This is, but she is the one who came back with Naomi from Moab. Then verse eight, Boaz said to Ruth, so now Boaz speaks to Ruth for the first time. Now listen, my daughter, which is a term of endearment. Listen, young woman, little one, listen. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep close to those that I've employed to gather. Stay with them. Don't go to some other field. You can stay in my field. Stay here and stay with these women. Look at verse nine, underline it. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. This is important. Follow them. Because the danger for Ruth, she doesn't know the area. She's not from here, has no idea where his boundary ends and where the next person's field begins. And if she crosses into another field, there's danger for her. There have been laws put into place in the book of Deuteronomy about because there have been women who had been um, abused or men who had been abusing women in grain fields just like this. And so Boaz says, hey, follow these women. They know where the boundaries are. Keep your eyes on this field. Follow them. Don't go outside of the boundary. It's dangerous out there. Keep your eyes fixed here and follow, follow them. She could unknowingly end up in someone else's field or maybe even worse, she could see how much more grain there was out there and she could knowingly go into another field. And Boaz, for her protection, says, stay with these women. And when you are thirsty, he says, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You can have of mine. You can have my water. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. And she said to him, to Boaz, why have I found favor or grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She knows her standing. But Boaz said to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. I've heard about you. I've heard about your integrity. I've heard about your work ethic. I've heard about your care for your mother-in-law and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. I also know that you are vulnerable. Then verse 12, the Lord, Yahweh, Yehovah, Yahweh, the good God, may he repay you for what you have done and, circle that word, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. What he's saying is, hey, may the Lord deal well with you and give you what you've earned, but may he give more than that on top. May you get a reward on top of that. 
Then he calls the Lord, the God of Israel, and he makes this phrase, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We're gonna come back to that in Ruth chapter three. So remember that, under whose wings. 13, and then she said, I have found favor. I have found grace in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. There's this interaction where Boaz is protecting and providing for Ruth. Do you see it? And Ruth makes this statement about finding favor in his eyes that he's spoken kindly to her. And then nothing. We don't know if Boaz responds. We don't know if he says, I love you too. Nothing like that. It just, it just lingers there. It just hangs out there. And we don't hear anything for another half of a day. The rest of the day continues. Apparently she probably went back out to the field to gather some more. And then verse 14 happens. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Now, wine would have been reserved for family. Wine would have been his. Wine is a Jewish euphemism for joy. So he says, come back here, eat some bread. Where'd the bread come from? Well, it came from his field of barley. Eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. You ever been to Pasta Max? You know the bread they bring you that's just soaked in butter and garlic? Where you feel your heart stopping as you eat it, you know what I mean? Or have you been to American Pie when you get those garlic knots and, um, and you start dipping the bread into it and it's, you can't stop? And then you eat so much and then you can't eat the pizza you've ordered and then the salad just sits there because you want to be healthy but now you've eaten all those and just me. Uh, That's what's happening here. Dipping. Dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. Keep in your mind, underline if you want to, the wine and the grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. She ate until she was full, and she had some left over. Now, uh, this may bring to mind a story from the New Testament of God feeding the 5,000 on the grassy hill, where they ate until they were full, and yet there were 12 baskets left over. Can I tell you something about God? He doesn't stop at your satisfaction. He gives you leftovers. You can believe that. She has some left over. And when she rose again to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Let her go in a bit further and do not reproach, do not shame her. Verse 16, and also, but wait, there's more. And also, Pull out some from the bundles for her and give it to her for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Remember in verse 12 where he said, may the Lord repay you and reward you, it's happening. May you get what the Lord has set aside from you for you and get more. You're gonna get more. You've got leftovers of the bread and wine. You're gonna get some of the good barley that they've already pulled off. The Lord is repaying you for your kindness to Naomi, but he's rewarding you, going above and beyond even for you. So verse 17, she gleaned until the evening. 
And when she beat out what she had gleaned, it was about an ephah of barley. Now, an ephah is 30 to 50 pounds of barley. An average day's ration for a male worker in the field was one to two pounds of barley. You think Boaz liked Ruth? He gives her a month's worth of ration. Not employed by him, not someone who's been there very long. She's been there for what, eight hours, 12 hours? And she gets 30 to 50 pounds of barley. Remember in Ruth chapter one, Naomi said, I went away full, but I have come back empty. And here is the Lord filling her up again. 30 to 50 pounds. Verse 18, she took it up and went into the city. I mean, come on, Ruth. Come on, carry that 45-pound plate up the hill into the city. I mean, she's pretty, but this girl's a beast. So she carries 50 pounds, right, of barley. And barley uh, in a bag is like carrying a, a sleeping child. Have you ever tried to do that? They can't support themselves. So you're just, your back's burning. She's carrying this back. So she gets back in um, verse 18. Now, you're going to notice here something about Naomi. What do you think about Naomi? Ruth has been gone all day. The first day she's gone to work. Uh, think about your child going to school for the first time or going to their job for the first time. And as a mama, you're, you're a little nervous, aren't you? What's this going to be like? Is she going to find favor? You know what happens in those fields. So Naomi hasn't slept at all. She hasn't eaten. She's barely been able to, to watch her soaps. And she has no idea uh, what's What's happening? And so she's probably at the window waiting, at the door waiting, looking, hoping she comes home. And she sees her coming with 50 pounds of barley. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She has no idea where she's been, knows nothing about uh, her being with Boaz. And so she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and she said, and notice how long of a phrase this is. Like, Ruth really draws this out. The man's name with whom I worked today is commercial break. Is Boaz and Naomi overjoyed, says to her daughter-in-law, oh, may he be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness, this word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which is translated mercy in the Old Testament. Uh, best translation is probably loving kindness. May the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living, us or the dead, the heritage of my husband. This idea of hesed is an active, pursuing, zealous kind of love. The woman who a chapter earlier said, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. He has dealt bitterly with me. And now she says, ah, oh, no, 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 no. He's been kind. Even when I didn't see it, he was working. Do you see that God has repaid and rewarded Naomi and Ruth? Do you see it? Above and beyond. 
Naomi then also says to her, this man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Some of your translations will say kinsmen or kinsmen redeemers. So God, his providence, uh, began in the past to be ready for the present that it might bless the future. Genesis chapter 38 and Leviticus 25 350 years to maybe six or 700 years earlier, God puts in place something called the kinsman redeemer. Someone in your clan, the next closest of kin, a person who would be one who avenges, delivers, rescues, and redeems property and family. God had put in place a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who happened to own a field, who, which happened to be where Ruth and Naomi lived. And it happened to be where Ruth would go to glean that day. And this kinsman redeemer, Boaz, happened to return to the field from Bethlehem at the very time that Ruth happened to be there. How good is God? There are no accidents. There's only appointments. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. It tells us there's more. He may not be the next closest, but what it tells Naomi is that God is working. God hasn't left her. There's hope still here. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, uh, he said to me, Boaz said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished my harvest. And then Naomi, you can picture her kind of snapping back into reality, says, it is good, my daughter, that you go with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. Well, that changed quickly. So Naomi is giddy, can't believe what happens. And we said, oh yeah, and by the way, he's gonna protect me. She says, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's cool about him. Yeah, be safe, be safe. Verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. This is a clue for us to tell us about timing. What we learn here is that Ruth went back to this field every day for three months. Three months from beginning to end of a harvest. What's interesting is that God doesn't change Ruth's circumstances in three months. There's no proposal, there's no ring, there's no extra money, there's no uh, mansion, there's no house in the hills, nothing. Because we learn in the next sentence, oh, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Which feels like a very anticlimactic way to end this chapter, doesn't it? What the author is telling us is that nothing has changed. Sure, she's able to eat, so God's um, brought the food provision for her but there's still no protection, there's no family, there's no provision in that way. So what we can do here is we can ask, well, what's taking Boaz so long? Like if he's the kinsman redeemer, what's taking so long? He's obviously drawn to her, right? He took notice of her. He's, he gave her a month's salary for one day of work. He thinks she's real pretty. So what's he doing? Why hasn't he stepped up? Have you ever felt that way with the Lord? Like, you see all the pieces, and God, why aren't you making it happen yet? I've seen it all, but I don't understand why you aren't showing up. Well, it's because nothing happens by accident, and everything happens by appointment. 
So like A.W. Tozer says, that if what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if we believe that God is great, he's sovereign, and he is good, and we believe this, if we fully believe that nothing happens by accident, everything happens by appointment, that your job is by appointment, your neighborhood is by appointment, your school is by appointment, your vacation plans were by appointment, your um, fault, your vacation plans that fell apart was by appointment. If, if that's true, then what do we do, right? If that's true, what do we do? Well, what we learn in chapter two is how we participate in the providence of God. And you've got Boaz and Ruth who are on two completely different ends of the spectrum. Ruth is needy of the providence of God. It seems that Boaz has already reaped the benefit of the providence of God. So what do we do? Well, there's, I think there's three things from this passage that we do. First is you do the next right thing. Boaz, you know what he does with the providence of God? He's faithful to the commands of God. And he leaves the corners of his field for the poor and the traveler and the foreigner. He leaves them. If he doesn't, Ruth goes to another field. But because of his faithfulness, because he did the next right thing, because he just obeyed, and I'm sure he looked at his field and said, man, that's a lot of barley I'm leaving out there. But he was faithful and he was obedient. Those of us on that side who, have, who have, are walking in the goodness of the providence of God, do the next right thing. Be obedient and be faithful. Show up at church. Worship, give, love your wife, love your husband, love your kids. Do the next right thing. Uh, don't perform shady business deals. Do the next right thing. Don't, don't take all that for yourself. Do the next right thing. And then what about Ruth? What if, what if you're in the situation of Ruth where you're desperate for God to providentially intervene? What do you do? Well, you do the next right thing. She just went to work, right? Like it wasn't some epiphany, no angel showed up. She didn't have some moment in worship of, oh, I need to, do the, I need to go to Africa. I need to go to the field. I need to provide for my mother-in-law. She just did the next right thing. You know what you need to do? You need to go to work. You need to go to school. You need to go to practice. You need to honor your commitments. You need to pay your bills. You need to change diapers. You need to feed that baby again. You gotta make dinner and you gotta do laundry. You gotta mow the grass. You just do the next right thing. Because if we really believe that nothing happens by accident, everything happens by appointment, what that means is even the most mundane tasks have miraculous power in them. You just show up. It's all you do. Even if you're Ruth, you just show up. Well, how, how do you know that? Well, because in Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to the, to the uh, philosophers on Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, and he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He, God, decided when we should live and where we should live. God did. And he decided where you should work, and he decided where you should go to school, and he decided who your geometry teacher is, and he decided who your coach was, and he decided that your coach would leave. He, he decided 
Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually not far from each one of us. And in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says that we are God's workmanship. We've been created by God uniquely, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the chronology of Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, is that God um, did, this is not, God did not create us and then say, oh, well, they're gonna be bored. Let me give them things to do. God created works to be done inside of the time in which you were created and the place in which you were living. And then he created you with those tasks or the ability, the gifts to accomplish those tasks. You wanna know why you just go to work? Because God created you to go to that job. And there are people there who need your story. And there's someone there who has been providentially blessed by God that you might reap the benefits of his providence. So you just do the next right thing. You don't have to burn all your CDs. Just do the next right thing. You don't have to fly to China. Just do the next right thing. Go to work. Secondly, you stay in the field. The great Crosby, Stills, and Nash said, love the one you're with. Notice, remember in verse nine, where um, Boaz tells Ruth, listen, keep your eyes on my field. Because he knows that she could unknowingly wander into another field, or maybe worse, she could knowingly seek another field. Boaz um, returned back to his field with his workers. So maybe... um, you're in the position of Boaz and you've been providentially blessed by God. Well, then find out in your circle where you live, work, and play, who is it that needs to be blessed? Who is it? Because there's a neighbor who needs what you have. There's a friend or a stepbrother or a cousin or a wife who needs the things that God has given to you. Stay in your field. Love the one you're with. And if you're Ruth, the temptation is this, to go outside of the boundaries of God's goodness to us to try to find more goodness. It's not how the world works. Psalm chapter 16, uh, verse four, David says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Those who look for another field have more sorrow. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Verse five, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Verse six, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Can you say that? The lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. In your workplace, at your position, at your uh, your school, in your career, in your home, in your neighborhood, do you believe the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places? For many of us, that's not, we can't say that then I would ask you, do you believe in the goodness of God? And do you believe in the sovereignty of God? If you do, they've fallen for you in pleasant places. And I know your neighbor's crazy, but God's still good. So we can be tempted to seek other fields or if we're not paying attention, we just wander into other fields. We gotta stay in the field. Don't tinker with the plans God has for you. Verse 11 says that you've made known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You wanna know why you stay in the field? Because that's where God is. 
and that's where his blessings are. God meets us in the field he planted for us. That's where he meets you. And you've been seeking God in someone else's field. And then you wonder, why hasn't God showed up? Why is he? You're in the wrong field. He's gonna meet you in the field he made for you. In your neighborhood, with your family, with your kids, with your wife, and your husband, and your job. Not somebody else's, yours. Do the next right thing. Stay in your field. Finally, we celebrate restoration. Do you believe this is who God is? Because I'm starting to. I'm starting to believe he actually is this good. And for years I wondered, and I thought he was just good to me because I was obedient, I was a good kid, or I pretended to be, or I knew how to hide certain sins so that he would approve of me. You know what I believe about God now? He's just good, regardless of my behavior. He's good. And because I believe that, I seek restoration. I look for it. I look for him um, showing up. I I look uh, for the date with the wine and the bread. I, I look for that. I look for leftovers. Not out of expectation, but because I know the character of God. And God is a God who satisfies and gives you a doggy bag. This is who he is. He really is that good. And I'm no prosperity preacher but he's that good. So we celebrate restoration. How do we know that he's that good? Because he keeps telling us he is and he keeps showing us that he is. The prophet Joel in the Old Testament is speaking to the people of God who are in captivity. He's telling them that the goodness of God is coming. It's coming, just wait, it's coming. Joel chapter two, verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people through Joel, behold, I am sending to you grain. Have you heard that before? Wine, have you heard that before? And oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will, make, I will no more make you a reproach or a shame among the nations. Verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice, celebrate in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain as before. Look at verse 24. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. It's interesting that Ruth chapter three happens at the threshing floor. They're full of grain. What's left over is full. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. How does God know that he can restore the years the locusts have eaten? Because he was part of that too. And he's got plans for you in the midst of your harvest being destroyed that you're gonna get it returned to you more than what God has taken from you. Again, I'm not a prosperity preacher. I just read the Bible. He's that good. And in reading the Bible and then stepping back and taking a look at my life, can I tell you something? This is true. He restores the years the locusts have eaten. Let's have a conversation. He's a restorer. He's a redeemer. 
and he planned it in the past to make it available in the present to bless the future. He will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Do you feel like you're destitute, like the locusts have eaten all of your crops? Listen, he's coming. He's coming. And he'll restore it. You shall eat in plenty, in verse 26, and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I'm present, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. If you find yourself like Boaz in a season of uh, the goodness of God's providence or if you're desperate for it, but the goodness of God is to be found by those who seek after him. So if you're like Ruth today, if you're like her, do the next right thing. Stay in the field. Celebrate restoration when it happens. It's not too good to be true. He really is that good. If you're like Boaz and the Lord has blessed you, be faithful, do the next right thing. Cut the corners of your field and leave it for the poor. You may not know why, but 350 years from now, there's gonna come a woman who's desperate for food. Stay in your field. Celebrate restoration when it comes. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to believe that you actually are that good. And if you are that good, and that all things happen by appointment and not by accident, God, help us to show up, stay in our field, to celebrate restoration. We believe that you're active and present. In Jesus' name, amen.